Father, thank you uh, just for a chance to gather together to remind ourselves and to remind one another that you are the supreme and transcendent God of the universe. That this whole world and our lives and every moment that goes by is about you and should be purposed for your glory. So God, may we um, just bring our attention to you now. May we set aside distractions and make you first and foremost in our minds. And we ask that you would teach us again. Show us what we need to change and how we need to be different. Teach us what we don't know. Teach us to be who we need to become. Uh, But we focus this time and center it upon you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, I forgot to make one other announcement, so I'm going to do it quickly. Uh, You guys have heard us talk about City Fest, which is coming up June 7th. Uh, So it's just a few weeks away, actually. Um, And uh, City Fest, they're looking for uh, about 500 what they're calling counselors, which is basically people who, uh, during the time of the invitation at the last night when they asked people to come forward to receive Christ, the counselors are folks that would be there to greet people and to uh, maybe help them with some questions that they might have or help lead them in the uh, the prayer of salvation. And uh, they are going to be providing some training for you in that, if that's something you would like to do. Uh, And so um, that... The the dates are in your bulletin. You can see when those upcoming trainings are happening. Uh, In addition, there's some promotional materials at the visitor center in the back where you can begin to pick up tickets. Uh, It's free to go, but you can begin to pick up these invitation tickets to hand out to your friends to let them know about City Fest. Uh, And also where you can um, find out more information about what it is to be a counselor and and, um, kind of how they're going to be training you and equipping you for that. Like I said, they're looking for 500 uh, people for, uh, to do this. I'm hoping that we can send about 20 to 25 people from our church. And so again, trainings are coming up. Look at your bulletin for that. And uh, and if you're a business owner or you care to, there's some um, uh, posters that are back there. If you want to post one, maybe in your business or something like that, grab one of those and uh, let's let's get the word out. So thank you for letting me make that announcement. As if you had a choice, you were hostages to it, I know. So All right, into our message. We're in John 3. If you would uh, turn there, we're starting at verse 22. And uh, I'm going to start by introducing some common rivalries. I'll give you the first name, and you see if you can come up with the second corresponding rival name. Okay, I think you can do this. Ford and Chevy. All right, some of you are working on it. We're getting there. Skidoo and Polaris. Good. First service, it was, you know, almost a riot broke out. It was skidoo and skidoo. That was it. (laughs) This one might throw some of you. If you're not a basketball fan, college basketball, that's what I'm thinking about here. Duke and North Carolina. That's right, North Carolina. Or really almost anybody that Duke plays is about how it goes. Um, Cat people and... That's right, normal people. Normal people. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) <laughs> I actually, I ran across something the other day. It absolutely made me laugh. It said this, there's not a lot that cat people and dog people can agree upon, except that there's nobody weirder than bird people. <laughs> All right. So I am an equal opportunity offender here. Um, I think all of us enjoy sort of these fun rivalries and jibes, except for cat people and bird people, but the rest of us enjoy them greatly. Um, and there's, there's plenty of different areas in our life where we have fun on these kinds of things. Um, but there are places in our lives where rivalries and competitions, um, 
surface and they're not good natured and they're they're not right and they can be destructive to ourselves or to others. Uh, And there are some places in life, especially in ministry, where it's just simply not appropriate. And um, as we kind of conclude the second half of chapter three here, we actually see this a potential rivalry develop between John the Baptist and his followers and the followers of Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. And what we're going to learn or at least be reminded of is this. I'll give you I know a lot of you have a lot of different things in your mind. So I'll I'll give you the bullet up front. And this is it. That there is one Christ and we are all co-laborers for him and for his honor and for the expansion of his kingdom. And as we fix our eyes upon Christ and the supremacy of Christ, then all of the petty competition and rivalry and jealousy will fall by the wayside. But it's when we get our attention fixed on one another and instead of the glory of Christ that we get trapped up in these things. And uh, so we're going to see where this surfaces here between John the Baptist followers and Jesus. Look at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, that one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but him sent ahead of him. The bridge belongs, excuse me, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And so the first thing that I want to draw out in terms of broad principle is this, that John, it seems to me in this opening part, affirms the supremacy of Christ's ministry over and above uh, John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, And it very quickly becomes apparent in the story here that the followers of John the Baptist, who were well-intentioned fellows, had lost sight of this. Uh, They had lost sight of what the purpose of their ministry was. And it appears that they had begun to take sort of personal accolades and credits and personal glory and affirmation from the ministry that they were a part of. The growth and the following that had occurred seemed to them to be about them. And so when another successful ministry across the river cropped up, they felt threatened by that. Um, If their hearts, we understand, had been focused on the right thing, then they very easily could have rejoiced in the success of this ministry. They could have recognized, hey, we're all here to promote Jesus Christ. This man that John the Baptist was pointing to as the Lamb of God. And as the following increases, we can rejoice that they're successful over there because we're all on the same mission together. But the jealousy that surfaced here really shows and really reveals their self-centeredness. They had become become a self-serving nature in the ministry. They had begun to use ministry for their own promotion. Uh, And then in converse to that, to the followers of John the Baptist, John the Baptist himself 
is incredibly humble. In fact, I would have to say this is one of the things that has stood out to me as in the past couple of weeks as we've been studying uh, the life of, of John the Baptist through the Gospel of John is his humility. I think I've always paid attention to sort of the wildness of John, you know, locusts and honey and dressed in this camel's hair and a leather belt and just seeing wild things. But what I really appreciate about him through this season of studying his life is just the humility that that seems to come forward. And so he once again takes a humble posture and he recognizes the sovereignty of God in the increase or the decrease of a ministry. And I think that's important for us to recognize and to apply to ourselves. Uh, I'll start with myself. Too many ministers, too many pastors, too many leaders have taken personal credit or personal blame for the success of a ministry or the lack of success of a ministry. Um, too many churches, now I'll expand to all of us, have patted themselves on the back for a season of growth, assuming that numeric growth is always good. They think that somehow they're responsible for it. They're doing all the right things, therefore the growth is happening because of their own efforts. This is a temptation that is available for us as a church, and we have to guard against that. We've recognized there has been a season of growth here, but we should be careful to never assume that it is because of anything that any one of us has done. If God increases a ministry, it's because he has done so. If God decreases a ministry, it's because he has done so. And so we don't want to take blame or credit, but recognize as John leads us here with this word that a man can receive only what God gives. A man can receive only what God gives. Uh, and I think a good way to illustrate this is to think of sort of an organic illustration. Think of a vineyard, if you would. In a vineyard, there is a time of um, there's a time of growth. Oh, excuse me here. Some microphone troubles. There's a time of growth, and it can be rapid. And there's a time of harvest, and everybody looks forward to that. There's also a time of pruning. There's a time of consolidation. And I think that's a pretty good illustration for any sort of an organism such as a church or such as ministry. We need to recognize that God puts the impossible, the miraculous uh, power in play for growth to occur. We're just a part of the machinery. But God does those things to make something grow. And so our goal must always be the health of a ministry and the clear conscience before the Lord. And let the rest, let God render the rest. The health of a ministry and a clear conscience before the Lord. I've quoted Tozer many times with this particular quote, and it's apropos once again. Concern yourself with the depth of your ministry and let God concern himself with the breadth of it. If God has called you to a specific ministry, whatever that is, whether it's over large numbers of people or whether it's to one specific person who is in a, in a time of crisis in their life, I don't know, whatever it is, then serve hard and serve faithfully there and invest deeply and give much and be sacrificial and pray hard and trust the Lord to give what is needed and let God take care of whatever would come out of that. At this particular point, uh, in Jesus's ministry, he has not yet spoken these words, but it seems that John the Baptist already has the sentiment that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. The power for ministry comes from God alone. And so I love this phrase. 
A man can receive only what God gives. Are you seeing success in your ministry efforts? Are you seeing a reduction? And Are you patting yourself on the back? Or are you kicking yourself for what feels like failure? A man can only receive what God gives. This is a message I think that you and I need to um, learn to preach to ourselves. And that might sound like a funny phrase, but one of the most important preachers in your life is you. Because you have to routinely tell yourself the truth. You have to proclaim to yourself what you know to be true from the word of God that you've heard and that you know. And you need to preach it to yourself when Satan tempts you with other thoughts and other ideas. And so you need to preach to yourself this message. A man can receive only what God gives. So if ministry is hard or jealousy creeps up, you're beginning to compare yourself to someone else. A rivalry is coming along and you're tempted to compare and contrast. And You need to remind yourself that you can only receive what God gives. And again, this isn't an excuse for laziness or haphazardness in ministry or being sloppy. Because lives and souls are at stake. We do our best, but we know that it is God who multiplies our fish and loaves, so to speak. It's God. It's God who gives the increase or the decrease. So we don't take too much credit or too much blame. So then John, he kind of reminds us here of the goal of all of our ministry efforts and all that we're doing. We're servants of Christ. If you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ and you've crossed over the threshold from death to life. And eternity is in store for you. Then I know exactly what God has called you to do. To make much of Jesus Christ. That is the new calling of your life. That's what you've been called to. That's what we get distracted away from. But John reminds us that we are servants of Christ. He is the ultimate recipient of any service that we actually do or perform. One of our elders reminded me recently of something I had heard before, but always appreciate hearing. And that is we serve an audience of one. We don't serve for the masses. We don't serve to be seen or to receive applause or acclaim. We serve for the pleasure of Jesus Christ and him alone. Um, We need to fix our eyes upon Christ and stop comparing ourselves with other people. Um, Let me kind of muddle around a little bit in your life and try to flesh out some ways this might show up. Uh, Maybe you're the kind of person, I'll be honest, this is me, so I'll start with me. One of the areas, one of the regrets that I have that I've lamented to you all before is I don't feel like God uses me very often to lead someone to Christ. And I, I, I struggle with that because I'm a pastor. My time is set aside and compensated to be a minister of the gospel. And yet I don't find that it happens very often that I'm there to pray with someone to cross the line of faith. And I regret that and I struggle with that. I wish that weren't the case. But, But it is. And I have to remind myself, I have to preach to myself and remember that God may not call me to lead 10 people to Jesus this year. In fact, it may take 10 years for me to lead one. And that's that's a reality that I have to accept. My job is to be faithful to be diligent, to use what God has given me and to trust him for the result. But ultimately, I'm a servant of Christ in that. We have to be reminded, too, that we have no business looking across town at some other church or some other ministry and comparing numbers or styles or response. We have no business looking at one another's small groups and comparing. 
We have no business looking at each other's Sunday school classes and the following and the impact that's there. We have no business making those comparisons. Maybe the temptation you face is to look at someone else's life very personally. And you see the relative health that they enjoy. Or the margin of income that they seem to have. Or the freedom to travel that they have. Or the number of grandkids or children that they have. Or the skills and the talents that God has given them and has not given to you. And you tend to be jealous over these kinds of things. We have to remember that our purpose is to serve Christ. It's to serve Christ. It's not about us at all. And so when John says, I am not the Christ, he's reminding his disciples and us of our job description. We're to exalt Jesus, not to steal his thunder, not to take his praise or his acclaim for us. And so I would suggest that that second phrase is one we need to preach to ourselves as well. Not just that a man can receive only what God gives, but a reminder, I'm not the Christ. And you're not the Christ. It's not about you and it's not about me. We need to make much of Jesus. We should be focused upon the glory of Christ. And then John illustrates this uh, with a wedding scene. Look at verse 29 here. It is wedding season after all. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Now, I learned something this week as I was studying this. In our culture, who is a wedding centered around? The bride. It's all about the bride, isn't it? If you think about it, you've got this, you've got a lineup of guys here and they're all wearing the exact same thing because nobody trusted them to dress themselves. They have been assigned a black canvas so as to shrink from all conspicuousness into the background. They're wearing the exact same thing in case something happens to the first guy. We can just drop him down and everybody can take a step forward. We can move right along, right? It's not about these guys at all. But when the bride comes in, the one person in the room wearing this bright, white, lovely dress, special music plays, you know, she walks down the center aisle. Everybody stands as though royalty were entering. It's amazing. And the bride comes forward and some sorry guy in a, you know, dark suit steps up and there we go. I know that's very romantic of me. Um... But actually, a Middle Eastern wedding, the fo- in the Middle Eastern wedding, the focal point was not the bride. It was actually the groom. Which clarifies a lot of the illustrations that we have about the, the, the church being the bride of Christ. Because in our culture, we're tempted to think it's all about us. And it's not. It's all about him. It's about the groom. That's an important detail to understand. So that what what is being said here is, this is his day. He is the focal point. I'm here to serve him. And culturally speaking, (laughs) culturally speaking, we have to understand that that's the way it worked if we're to get this right. Or we will once again make it about us. And so when John the Baptist is saying, it's mine to just attend him. He's saying, I'm just the best man. I'm just here To serve him on this day because it is his day and it is his honor. Our role is to honor and to adorn Christ. 
not to use him or his name or our ministry opportunities for personal validation or success. I want to ask you a question, and I hope it will just kind of rattle around in your heads a little bit for a while. And and that is this. How are we actively bringing glory to Christ? Let me make it more personal. How are you actively bringing glory to Christ? Can you answer that question? Because I'm challenging you that this is the calling of our life. And if we can't answer that question, then we have absolutely missed our mission and calling as individuals before God. Some of us have crossed the finish line of faith and folded our arms and are doing no more for the kingdom of God. But your calling is to actively bring glory to Christ. And I love the way that John says it here at the end. This is so memorable. He talks about that he must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become Less. And that's the next point. We should be willing to decrease. The death to self. A birth to Christ is a death to self. Henry Nouwen says this in his book, In the Name of Jesus. The way of, Christ, of, a, the, way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much. But the way of downward mobility ending at the cross. Uh, how backwards that we oftentimes look to those with numbers and size and metrics as successful when in fact Jesus had 12 close followers, one which disowned him, one which basically betrayed him, and a few other followers, but in the end his ministry ended in death. And yet we measure successful ministry in all kinds of other ways today. And so this isn't just a correction, I think, for ministry leaders or pastors, but really there's a personal relevance for each one. And so, again, I'm going to try to rummage around in your lives a little bit here and see if we can maybe prick your conscience as to the way the Lord might be speaking to you on this. What are the opportunities or what are the occasions in your life where rivalries develop? Maybe for some of you, it is between churches. Maybe you're one who is tempted to look across town and see the attendance of another church or its growth or its ministries or its staff or its buildings, and you can be envious and you have a sense of rivalry about that. I'll tell you that's a temptation for pastors, just being honest. How about uh, within your respective ministries? I was joking earlier between Michael and Kara about you could sabotage her ministry and steal all of her recruits. We joke about that, but boy, isn't that possible within the church, right? We want, there's only so many resources. There's only so much airtime to promote things. There's only so much exposure, and maybe we can have rivalries among ministries. What about among ministers, leaders, people, servants? Well, this person has more following or more influence or more popularity. What about between friends? Maybe it's very easy for you to make a comparison with some of your friends. You look at the skills that God has given them, the gifting that they have, the opportunities they they have, and you become jealous of your friends and the place where God has placed them. Uh, What about between families? Um, Ladies, I'm going to pick on you, even though it's Mother's Day. You don't get a pass here. You ever tempted to compare your family with someone else's? And look at how are their kids doing? What grades are they bringing home? 
How well are they playing their instrument? How come they're on book three when we're still on book one? You get jealous about their maybe someone else's marriage. Why is it that she and her husband speak so well to each other? Why do they just seem to have such peace and accord? Why do they get to go on a family vacation every year when we're struggling to make ends meet? Why do they have a financial margin and we just can't seem to get ahead? We can make these comparisons and these rivalries and these jealousies can can come up. And I think John corrects these things with this very good word that he gives us. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. Which doesn't mean that we put our rival on sort of the pedestal here, but rather nobody gets the pedestal except Christ alone. And when we start feeling that way, our eyes are going sideways and we're looking at others and we're making comparisons. And honestly, we're making it about us or we're making it about them, but we're not making it about Jesus Christ. And the calling of our life is to make much of Jesus and to honor and to affirm him above all. He is our primary focus. And I I would challenge you with a particular discipline to train yourself to think differently about this. And I would call it the discipline of celebration. It's something that the church, I think, not just Bethel, but, but any church, I think the church overall has really lost the ability to do this. Because when something great happened in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, God said, throw a party, right? Have a party about this and commemorate it because God acted and you need to remember that he did this. And we don't do that very much anymore. I think a discipline for churches and for individuals is to throw parties and celebrate the goodness of God when we see it. Yeah. And we need to do that personally, too. We need to be able to come alongside our friends and say, God was faithful to you in this. And we need to celebrate. And I'm throwing you a party. We need to practice that discipline so that we don't get into these competitive rivalries, but we celebrate the goodness of God. The second part of this, we've already talked about here how John affirms the supremacy of Christ's ministry. And the second part of the message is this. He he affirms the supremacy of Christ's message over and above his own here in a sense. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Notice the repetition there. Remember Bethel? When we see repetition, it's the volume knob of scriptures. That's what we're meant to hear. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. And so John is helpful here to put a couple of things in perspective for his followers and for us. And and the first thing, just sort of in broad concepts, I think the first one he's trying to do is that we all ought to recognize our personal limits and don't be offended by this, but in fact, take some peace and comfort from it. He says, the one who is from above is above all, and we're just from the earth. We are finite. We have limits, and there is comfort and peace in acknowledging our limits, because when we take responsibility for everything under the sun, then we struggle with one of two things. We either struggle with pride, because we think we're responsible for too much, or we we struggle with overwhelming guilt, 
because we have failed too much. And there is great peace and comfort in acknowledging our limitations that we are from this earth. But Christ, who is above all, is above all of us. And his message and his words are above anything that you and I could say or to offer. And secondly, we need to rejoice in the power of the gospel. We need to rejoice in the power of the gospel. Um, this passage is again reminding us of the supremacy of Christ, not just over John the Baptist and not just over his ministry, but in fact, John the Baptist is sort of pointing back to all of the predecessors who came before Christ. He's looking back to all of the prophets that spoke a message before Jesus arrived. In verse 34, we're given this phrase here. It says that God gives the spirit without limit. Now we can look back in the scriptures and we can come up with many prophets such as Nathan, David, Samuel, Jonah, Isaiah, Joel, who in a moment in time were indwelt by the Spirit of God for a specific occasion. And they were empowered to do it. But it was for just an occasion. The Spirit sort of came and left. It was a, it was a localized manifestation for that particular moment. And as great as and powerful as it was, it was limited in time. But now... John says, one has come to whom the spirit has been given without limit. When we look at the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist said that he saw the spirit descend upon him. And there's a key word there. It remained upon him. It remained. And so there was a power and a manifestation of the spirit of God in Christ as he did his ministry. And I I just confess to you, I don't understand that. How does the triune God and the Spirit empower Jesus' work? I don't understand that. But what is absolutely clear here is this. Jesus' ministry and his message are superior to any that have come before him. And John wants us to see that in no uncertain terms. God has given him the Spirit without limit. The words of Christ and the words of God are superior to anything we would offer. So when God calls you to that moment, To speak the truth to someone, make sure it is grounded in the scriptures. Because it has a power that you yourself don't have. I think it's interesting here. There's there's all kinds of occasions where uh, in the scriptures and actually in history where we see potential rivalries, even within ministry, sort of develop. Uh, We can look back to David and Saul. Remember this? Both David and Saul were actually anointed, not at the same moment, but during the same time. Their anointings to be king overlapped. For 16 years, David waited after having been anointed by Samuel to wait for the time that God would have him ascend the throne. And was there a rivalry going on? You better believe it. Saul wanted to play human darts one day, if you remember. It says that he tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. So we see it there. We see it, of course, here between Jesus and John the Baptist, the potential rivalry that that he is trying to keep down. And again, John the Baptist takes this humble posture and affirms Christ. We see it later on between Peter and Paul. Initially, Peter was sort of the leader of the church. And then Paul comes on the scene. And here's an opportunity for a rivalry, right? But somehow Peter just kind of affirms Paul and steps to the side. It also happened in church in church history between Whitfield and Wesley. I don't know if you know about these guys. Whitfield was a preacher. He'd step on a stump and just get preaching and a crowd would gather. And Wesley was a very different kind of man, a more administrative type. 
He didn't have these huge numbers of followings, and he didn't have this charismatic personality. But what he went and did is he followed around behind Whitfield and organized the groups of converts into small groups of discipleship, uh, uh, discipleship groups. And in the end, it's interesting because at the end of Whit, uh, Whitfield's life, he lamented that it was Wesley who had the greater impact than he did because of the long-term discipleship that he had put together. It also happened between, of all people, um, Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've heard of these two guys before. Spurgeon was this great big beast of a guy, uh, which was one of the reasons he did so well in preaching, because oftentimes he wasn't, uh, he wasn't mic'd, so he would just have to project. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was known to uh, enjoy a good pipe. And one time, these two guys met, and um, Spurgeon looked at C.S. Lewis and said, I can't believe a man of your quality would degrade himself by smoking a pipe. And C.S. Lewis looked right back at him and said, I can't believe a man of your stature would be so fat. (laughs) I imagine it was good natured. (laughs) But I don't know. Um, In the midst of all of all of this, we, we, we know there is a potential for rivalries and jealousy and competition to crop up. But I think John the Baptist has given us just an arsenal of short, pithy sermons that you and I need to preach to ourselves to keep this from occurring. And they're all throughout the text. We've already heard them. A man can receive only what God gives. If you're tempted to pat yourself on the, on the back for what you think is your success, a man can only receive what God gives. If you're tempted to blame yourself for what feels like a failure, a man can receive only what God gives. I am not the Christ, but the one sent ahead of him. It's a reminder of our role and our calling. It's not just John the Baptist's role. We're ambassadors for Jesus. That's the calling of our life. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices. We're here to make much of Jesus. We're here to attend to him and to his honor, right? In his name. It's his day. It's his name. It's his people. We're here for him, not the other way around. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices. He must increase, I must decrease. It's not about us. And last of all, I am from the earth, and he is above all. Just five sermons, five one-line sermons, you need to preach to yourself regularly to put to death the spirit of rivalry and jealousy and competition. Let's pray. Lord, there are times where we may look at the word and feel like... Uh, This text is locked away in some historical moment and has nothing to say to us today. And yet we realize that human nature is the same. It's the same then as it is now. We struggle with pride, self-centeredness, comparisons, jealousy, and insecurity. And we confess that. God, help us to preach to ourselves the truth of your word, the truths that John the Baptist spoke. We must decrease. You must increase. God, help us to focus our lives on the appropriate mission of making much of Jesus and little of ourselves. We'll need your help in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.